Estamos transmitiendo, ¿verdad? Sí. Bien, bueno, la autocrítica. Independencia o nada. Comuna o nada. ¿O qué es lo que hacemos aquí? El golpe de timón. Was Hugo Chavez's address to his cabinet of ministers on October 20th, 2012, shortly after his resounding re-election on October 7th. The speech, translated into English as Strike at the Helm, is considered his political testament. Broadcast live over the air, it was his last major political address to his government and the Venezuelan people. Today, as we commemorate the 10-year anniversary of his death on March 5th, 2013, there is no better instrument to understand and appreciate the legacy of Chavez than this speech. Throughout the address, in which he lays out his vision of the Venezuelan road to socialism, the urgent need for criticism and self-criticism is evident. You can hear it in his voice, in those now famous words, commune or nothing. It is a passionate plea, yes, but he's also angry. El golpe de timón was a wake-up call. If in this new cycle of the revolution, every branch of government, every ministry, every public sector worker wasn't working to strengthen communal power, then as Chavez says, what are we doing here? Chavez knew that not everyone around him was clear about the path forward. The speech was also a warning. He said so himself, quote, if we are unable to realize this, we are done for. Not only are we done for, but we will be the ruin of this project. Those of us here, those present, face a historic responsibility, end quote. Less than five months later, Chavez would pass away after a long battle with cancer. To the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on the ground, English language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking at the legacy of Hugo Chavez, 10 years removed from his death. To understand his impact on Venezuela, we have to go back in time to Venezuela before Chavez. What were the conditions in the country? that opened the door for a figure like Chavez? What was it about him that allowed him to tap into that discontent? What is it about his connection with the people that made him such a powerful leader? To answer these questions and more, we will speak with Venezuelan activist, sociologist, and former government minister, Reinaldo Ituriza Lopez. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis, Sira Pascual Marquina, about Chavez's own political development, from advocate for third-way politics to one of the fiercest critics of capitalism, as well as his contributions to the development of socialist thought. I'm joined by Sira Pascua Marquina, who many of you may be familiar with if you've listened to other programs. It's really great to have her, as always, just an excellent comrade at Venezuela Analysis. Sira, I'd like to begin with an examination of Chavez's political thought and project. It's interesting, if you watch some of his speeches, he'll even admit himself that he once defended the third way perspective, capitalism with a human face. But obviously we know, and he said so himself, that he abandoned it and instead championed what he started calling 21st century socialism. Can you tell us what drove this transition? 
Thank you, Jose Luis. Uh, well, it's great to be doing this uh, program 10 years from Chavez's passing away, but his legacy, as we will be talking about today, it's alive and well in Venezuela. So, yes, in uh, 1998, when Chavez was running for the presidency, he was talking about the third way and capitalism with a human face. But I think it would be good to trace Chavez's thought to a little bit earlier, to the beginning of that decade, when Chavez was in prison and shortly after a little book that's called The Blue Book came out. And in that book, he talks about participative and protagonist democracy. Uh, basically, this was kind of like one of the most powerful ideas that stayed uh, through the Bolivarian process when Chavez was alive and it's still with us today, of course. So uh, as opposed to what the idea is that as opposed to the restricted democracy of capitalism, there should be, we should struggle for a substantive democracy. Now, it's true that he was talking about this uh, proposal in the early 90s, and when he was talking about this proposal, he was thinking about a different kind of democracy in political terms. So indeed, he was not talking yet about socialism. But I think we can find the origins of socialism in his thought already in the early 90s. Later in that decade, as I was saying, when he was running for the presidency, and as you pointed out, the discourse was a little bit lighter. Uh, let's say that it was not such a, it was not a discourse of rupture. So that those would be the early years of Chavez. And then what happens? He comes to power. And of course, he comes to power uh, talking about a constituent assembly which is a radical democratic proposal, and the Constituent Assembly happened. And in 1999, Venezuela, we have a new constitution, which is a very advanced constitution. But it is true that in that constitution, of course, there's not a proposal for socialism. This is pre-socialism in the Bolivarian process. So let's, when we think about Chavez, I think it's important to kind of like organize the ideas, the proposal, and kind of like the threads of thought within his uh, practice, and of course within the collective practice that was the Bolivarian Revolution. I would like to highlight that the revolution is a collective, uh, a collective doing, a collective process. So uh, what happens later? Well, why does eventually around 2005 and 2006 Chavez uh, talk about socialism? Well, there were several events. In 2001, there was a new, there was a package of laws, including the oil law and the land law. And both laws, basically, the oil law basically pointed towards a real nationalization of the oil resources. And the land law points to the campesinos' right to take land that is not being, landless campesinos, their right to take the land that is not being, that's not producing. In other words, basically, already in 2001, Chavez and the Bolivarian process begin to question the sacrosanct private property, which is no other than the property that lets the majority have nothing. Uh, then, so that is followed by a coup and is followed by a lot of external and internal uh, action to overthrow the, the Bolivarian process. 
and the streets kind of like get very the kind of like streets confronta confrontations get intense at one moment and the Bolivarian process begins to go through a collective reflection about what are the limits of the existing system system of the capitalist existing system in Venezuela that together with some reflections uh, that come from Bolivar about the need not only to overcome, let's say, the formal structures of colonialism, but also the political forms of colonialism that were still, that basically are still alive uh, around the world today. With these reflections, uh, Chavez begins to, to think, Chavez and the Venezuelan people begin to think about the need to build another kind of society, a radically, a substantively different kind of society. In 2005, at the World Social Forum, uh, he picks up the, the slogan of the Social Forum, which was, another world is necessary, and he says, another world is necessary, and it has to be socialist, a socialist world. So that is around the time when Chavez begins to talk about socialism with all its letters, but especially with all its content. It's important to talk about this because we are talking about 2005, 2006. Imagine that. That's not too long about after the fall of the Soviet Union. And basically, the world left had abandoned the objective of socialism, at least in discursive terms. Then uh, Chavez begins to talk about socialism. He actually talks about 21st century socialism first. And there's a kind of acknowledgement that in real socialism, in the East Bloc socialism of the 20th century, uh, while there had been many advances, there had not been a substantive democratization of socialism. So when Chavez is talking about 21st socialism, basically he's picking up on the working class history of socialism and proposing a series of correctives, which of course, he's not the first one to propose them. Marx himself thinks about, so about socialism as a substantively uh, democratic project where not only politics, but also the economy, the whole of it, uh, the whole society gets democratized. Everybody participates in the construction of a new just society. You know, despite dying relatively young, Chavez had a long political career. You just did a great job telling us about some of the aspects of how his political thought evolved. But I think the very fact that he covered a lot of ground leads people to claim different, even contradictory things about what constitutes his legacy. But I think one thing we can say is that his last political testament, which we've talked about on the program before, and I invite listeners to check out episode nine and 10, where we get into some of these issues. His last political testament emphasized the commune. You know, you've visited with many communes, talked with many communards. What would you say that they say is Chavez's legacy? Would it be correct to say that the communes today are the heirs of Chavez's legacy? Yes, I think that that would be the correct. Uh, if we had to say very little about Chavez's legacy, we would say the commune. Basically, in the speech that you talked about, the strike at the helm, uh, Chavez um, says, amongst many other things, uh, commune or nothing. Basically, 
when Chavez is saying commune or nothing, basically Chavez saying that there is, that we have as a project, the obligation to choose two paths are opening up. It's either the path of death and expoliation and possibly, as we know, uh, of basically the extinction of life on Earth because of uh, the logic of cap the absolutely destructive logic of capital. And there's another path, uh, which is the communal uh, path, which is actually, we would argue, and maybe this is a little bit uh, self-centered, but many of us would argue from Venezuela that that path, that socialist path, actually has to be communal. Now, when we are talking about the commune, basically we are talking about the democratization of the social relations, the, the construction of new social relations from the territory, the democratization of all aspects of life from the territory. So specifically, we say that, that those territories, those spaces are the communes. And indeed, uh, well, we have been doing Venezuela analysis, um, a, a pretty thorough work of visiting different communes and um, learning about how they are building an alternative. The first thing when you go to a commune that you will almost always see is either a mural of Chavez or a quote, a mural with, uh, with a quote by Chavez. So in the communes, you can really feel that Chavez is alive. Uh, so I can tell you a little bit about the different, different communes where I have, that we have visited and kind of like the principle, the key elements that we learn from them. For instance, from going to El Maizal, which is a commune, perhaps the best known commune in Lara State, when you go to El Maizal, which is a rural commune, you will find, you, you enter a space, which is, you know, like a tremendous tract of land, which is communal social property. So in El Maizal, all the property belongs to the people who live in the territory. And basically what happens there is that they produce a lot of corn and also cattle. And what they produce, they produce it um, through an assembly-based process. What they produce, how they produce it, for whom do they produce it, and what's going to happen with the surplus, with the accident, those things are decided collectively. So when you go to El Maizal, you actually can see, it's not that you can imagine a socialist future, is that you can see in El Maizal a socialist exercise at small scale, of course, but you can see a socialist exercise. Or here in Caracas, in El Panal Commune, which is actually the first commune in Venezuela, even before Chavez began to uh, talk about the communes, um, when he was talking about the communal councils in 2006, El Panal, a group of, of uh, Padres in El Panal Commune in 23 de Enero, which is a working class neighborhood with a long story of history of struggles. Um, in 2006, these people already decided that they were going to build a commune. This, the story of this territory is very interesting because it's in, a, as I was saying, in a working class barrio. And uh, this organ the organization that was basically the organization that triggered or that fostered the creation of the commune is a, an organization 
that began actually displacing the drug dealing gangs from the territory years before the the actual construction of the commune. So these uh, people had a lot of moral authority and were very loved in the territory, and they proposed the communalization of the territory, which in the beginning was more of an idea, and then it began to take shape when Chavez, uh, in in economic terms, it began to take shape later when Chavez began to talk about the commune, and then they built a uh, they had a, a bakery and a textile workshop, which is still there. Now they have a pig farm, and they are also doing farming in the middle of the city. And all this is done, again, uh, following the, the communal model, which is where the, in these spaces the people meet in assemblies and they decide what they are going to do. At another commune, at the Che Guevara commune, and I recommend everybody... Uh, that is listening to us to turn to uh, when they go to Venezuela analysis, go to communal resistance, and they'll find all the all the specials, the the articles that we have done uh, covering these communes. And in in these uh, in these articles, it's actually the communards, the ones who will be speaking. So at the Chicaravara commune, which is a commune in Merida, in the mountainous, in the lower mountains of Venezuela, in this commune, they produce coffee and they produce chocolate. And they have the means of production that are collectively owned are actually the plants, the factories. The land is not collective, but the plants where they process both the coffee and where they process the chocolate, which are excellent, by the way, both um, those places are collectively owned. And uh, out of those spaces, with the surplus that's that's uh, that that's yielded by the by the production, uh, out of those spaces you will find basically that the commune solves the problems of some neighbor who I don't know is very sick sick and due to the blockade uh, the uh, health infrastructure is in terrible shape so the commune will pay for this person to go to a doctor or if somebody dies the commune will pay for the burial, etc., etc. So you can also, when you go to the Che Guevara commune, which is, by the way, in a spectacular landscape, in a very, very beautiful landscape, you begin to see how people can collectively um, solve the problems. Uh, but that's not just by pure will. It's also because they are the because the people, the pueblo, are the owners of the means of production. In this case, of the processing plants. And, well, there are so many more communes. I could tell you about the Luisa Cáceres commune, which is an eco-socialist commune in Barcelona, um, where they basically do recycling. They collect the trash and they do recycling. About the Cinco Fortalezas commune um, in Cumanacoa, in the east of the country, where a very uh, robust group of mostly women are sugar growers, and they have a tremendous uh, love for Chavez and a tremendous commitment to building new social relationships and actually new social relationships, as I was saying early, earlier, are actually emerging already in these new spaces. So yes, socialism is our strategic horizon, but the commune is the path towards socialism and the communes are the true heirs of uh, Chavez's legacy. I mean, I think humanity, we are all the heirs of uh, of the of the legacy of any revolution, right? 
but if you are talking about actually um, materialized, um, a materialized inheritance of Chavez's uh, proposal, it would be in the commune. It's interesting as I listen to you talk about the communes and your experiences there and what you've seen, all of this language that Chavez used when he talked about el pueblo protagonista, right? The people as the protagonist, it feels like it's come alive, like that's seeing these ideas in action. And that actually brings me to my last question. You know, we know that Chavez was a really voracious reader. And I remember coming across anecdotes that his doctors would get mad at him because he wouldn't sleep enough because he would wake up and start reading. And so we know he placed a lot of emphasis on theory. His contributions weren't just in practice, but on the development of political theory. What lessons do you think we can draw from the Venezuelan experience of building socialism under Chavez that we could say have a universal application? Well, that's a great question. Um, basically, indeed, Chavez was a great reader. Uh, perhaps the first stuff that he read was Simon Bolivar, and that's not uh, irrelevant to the construction of a socialist and fully emancipated future because in the independence struggle, in the later part of the independence struggle, uh, basically, Bolivar and the heroes of the independence were fighting not only for national emancipation and independence, basically, but also for social emancipation. Basically, learning from the Haitian Revolution, which was the first successful social revolution in the continent, um, the struggle of independence, which is not only the struggle of independence of Venezuela, but of the Patria Grande, of, of the whole continent, uh, took kind of like had a horizon that went beyond uh, just get doing away with Spanish domination. So that's important, and it was it's important in Chavez's reflection. And I think, of course, this reflection is important for the whole of the continent, para toda nuestra América, let's say, for the whole of Latin America and the Caribbean. So um, there's that which is important in Chavez, but then. When Chavez is, is begins to think about socialism and when the Bolivarian process, the people that are building uh, the future in Venezuela begin to think about a future that should be socialism, there's an interesting reflection that in this case comes mostly uh, from Chavez. That is that, uh, in fact, what I was saying earlier, the so, uh, real socialism had had some limits. And Chavez begins to think about this actually with Mesados, the Hungarian, uh, the Hungarian philosopher. Uh, the Hungarian philosopher basically talks about the continuation of the metabolism of capital in the actually existing uh, Soviet uh, exercises of, of, for the construction of socialism. So it's necessary to overcome not only ca the capitalist relations of uh, exploitation, but it is also to overcome a metabolism that is intrinsically anti-democratic within capitalism that uh, remain that stayed alive 
in much of the experiences of socialism in the 20th in the 20th century you know so this is actually interesting because it actually connects to what we were talking about earlier on in the conversation in the in the interview you we were talking about the substantive participative and protagonic democracy that chavez was thinking about in the early 90s So when Chavez begins to think about socialism, he thinks about socialism, but with this very profound interest in democracy. And he f actually meets, uh, he meets uh, Mesaros a couple of times. They talk very long, but they exchange letters too. Chavez reads Mesaros and is very influenced by Mesaros. And out of there comes, again, basically the commune, which is basically our end endpoint in in our conversation today seemingly with everything so comes the the commune where which is a space where new social relations are merged social property democratic des decisions are taken together and i think that that's basically the key um, the most important uh worldwide teaching in, in theoretical terms of the bolivarian revolution of course For us as Latin Americans and as people committed to well to to the people of this continent, um, the issue of Latin American integration is also key when we think about Chavez's thought and about the Bolivarian Revolution. And it is called the Bolivarian Revolution. That's not uh, accidental. It's called the Bolivarian Revolution because of Bolivar, who is the first person who puts, uh, let's say, on paper or on his speeches the idea of a unified uh, Gran Colombia, of an integrated uh, continent, because, uh, well, altogether we will be stronger when fighting against imperialism, and especially when we uh, struggle to build a post-capitalist society. So, yeah, um, I think that we could wrap up saying uh, something that I said before, that Chavez, in that uh, speech in October 2012, Uh, he said, commune or nothing, comuna or nada. And that is actually an imperative for us. You know, these days there's lots of talk about how where before a new progressive leftist pink wave, whatever you want to call it. The thing is, is that we now have the benefit of that previous experience. And I think there's a lot we can draw from it to make a more thorough transformation of our countries, of our society, and, and get closer to that utopia that we're working towards. We've been speaking with Sira Pascua Marquina. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's been great. Thank you very much, Jose Luis. Nicolás, te encomiendo esto como te encomendaría mi vida, la comuna. In our next segment, we will speak with Reinaldo Iturriza López. He is an activist, writer, and sociologist with a degree from Venezuela Central University. Reinaldo is the author of several books, including his latest, con gente como esta, es posible comenzar de nuevo. In the political transformation processes throughout Latin America, a key element has been that of leadership. In the revolutionary processes that have had the greatest reach, here we're talking about Cuba and Venezuela, the figure of Fidel and Chavez was indispensable. However, some analysts superficially reduce this to a simple case of charismatic figure, which conceals the role of the leader of a transformation and the dialectical relationship between a president and the people. What were the qualities of Chávez that allowed him to lead this revolutionary process in Venezuela? 
a mí me gustaría comenzar subrayando algo que ya tú sugieres en la formulación de tu pregunta, ¿no? Que esta tendencia... I'd like to start by emphasizing what you alluded to in your question, which is this tendency to focus too much on the leader, underestimating the decisive role that is played by the popular subject and the popular classes. In the case of Chavez, this is crucial to understand what has happened in Venezuela since the mid-1990s, which is the moment that Chavismo was forged, Chavismo in this case being understood as a political identity. In part, what takes place during these years is that the Bolivarian movement, the Bolivarian military officers and Comandante Chavez in particular, are going to channel this popular rebelliousness that had manifested itself in the February 27, 1989 popular uprising, known as the Caracaso. This is the founding moment of a new epoch in Venezuela. These Bolivarian military officers with Chavez at the head had the enormous political virtue, intelligence, audacity, capacity, and the will to channel that rebelliousness, that popular energy, that popular force. This will eventually translate into a political identity. But it is an identity which is to a great extent a class identity of the popular class, even though Chavismo is a movement of movements, we could say, rather broad movement. But its backbone is the popular classes, without any doubt. The popular class is the working class, and within the working class, the huge, enormous subset of excluded workers, those workers whose wages were not even enough to ensure their reproduction as a workforce, which is a huge percentage of Venezuelan society back then. These classes will influence, or to a large extent, determine the type of leadership that Chavez will exercise. In other words, there is no Chavez without the Venezuelan people. There is no Chavez without Chavismo, just as there is no Chavismo without Chavez, of course. Chavez exerts such an influence that the movement ends up adopting his name. But I am convinced that there are certain junctures where the movement, or at least the most lucid members of the movement, are on a par with Chavez, or even in some cases, even ahead of Chavez himself, telling him what to do questioning him very strongly, questioning his government quite strongly. This is something that's overlooked all the time. Chavismo is a political subject undergoing a constant transformation. It has always been extremely demanding of its government, with its leadership. But this was so because there was a very wide horizon of expectations. In other words, there was a belief that through mobilization, through popular criticism, this mobilization and criticism could be effective. And this is a good thing. It's another virtue of political leadership and specifically of Chavez's political leadership. Allow me to highlight a few other aspects. The first of them, in my opinion, is the importance, that is to say, the crucial fact that the Bolivarian officers in Chavez specifically became convinced, or let's put it this way, they quote-unquote discovered the central concept of a participative and protagonist democracy. That is to say, the Bolivarian officers, who will eventually form the MBR 200, the Bolivarian Revolutionary Movement 200, a movement led, among other comrades, by Comandante Chavez, they made this discovery. This is a movement that is confronting formal democracy, which is appropriately identified as representative democracy. But they defend democracy as a principle. 
and they're convinced that democracy has to be practiced, exercised, and conceived in a different way. And this theoretical political discovery, again in quotes, is this of participative and protagonist democracy. That is to say, a democracy where the people must participate. But it's not enough for the people to participate. People must be the protagonists in the exercise of politics, not only on a daily basis in the communities, but they must be capable of influencing the major decisions of national policy and even beyond. Chavez will call this political and theoretical discovery, he'll qualify it as follows, an epistemological rupture of the first order. Then there's the reclamation by the Bolivarian officers, and Chavez in particular, of the founders of the Venezuelan Republic. Of course, I'm fundamentally referring to Bolivar. I'm referring to what the movement ends up calling the three roots. The main figures would be Simón Bolivar, Simón Rodríguez, also known as Samuel Robinson, and Ezequiel Zamora. As I was saying, I'm referring fundamentally to the main figures of Venezuelan independence, but also reclaimed were the indigenous resistance, as well as the resistance of the Black Maroons. Furthermore, what Ezequiel Zamora represents was proclaimed, that is, the struggle for land and liberated men, the anti-oligarchic struggle, etc. That is fundamental. It seems to me that there is a virtue there. This was not the first time that an advanced political movement in Venezuela tried this. The difference is that in this case, it has influence on the national stage. This was a sort of general rediscovery in Venezuelan society of figures that had been misrepresented by the official propaganda in the case of Bolivar, or just deliberately forgotten as in the case of Ezequiel Zamora. On a related note, there was also the ability to integrate these key national popular figures with the revolutionary left-wing tradition. This would also have a very important impact. The Bolivarian officers were military men after all, including Chavez, and it seems to me that this is one of his qualities. He was a military man who, to the extent that he developed a political conscience, his politicization was clearly from the left. Chavez was, of course, a military man, a patriotic military man, one who was inscribed in that military tradition of a national popular orientation. But ever since the existence of the political Chavez, he was always a Chavez who was leftist, firmly placed in the revolutionary left. And this will affect, positively speaking, the way in which he begins to absorb the theoretical tradition of the left, not only Venezuelan left, but a universal left. That seems to me as another of his qualities. Another one of his virtues, in my opinion, was his willingness to lead by example. That is to say, Chavez was always concerned with being an ethical example. In fact, one of the greatest problems arising from his passing is that Venezuela has lost its main ethical visionary. This is going to have some implications, very serious and very significant, which we do not have the chance to refer to in detail, but this is the truth. I would also undoubtedly highlight his extraordinary capacity to listen to people. This is connected to what I was saying earlier about a participative and protagonist democracy. Listening to the people, Chavez was a man with an extraordinary ability or with an extraordinary capacity to listen to put himself in other people's shoes, to recognize himself in the popular tragedy, but also in their aspirations, in all wonderful and extraordinary that the popular classes have as well, of a people that fights, a vibrant people, people with dignity, etc., etc. Chavez reclaimed and celebrated all of this. And related to what I have just said, 
Chavez had an ability to chart the strategic horizon, that is to say, to outline and determine a plan of action. So we have here our theoretical references, our political references, a way of conceiving history, a way of understanding, of conceiving democracy, a way of conceiving the relationship with the people, then bringing that together into a plan. This is the strategic horizon. This is where we're going. As a whole, it seems to me that these are some of the main qualities of Comandante Chavez. En su conjunto, me parece que estas son como algunas de las principales cualidades de, del comandante Chávez. A decade has passed since Chávez's death. We have new generations that did not live in the era before the revolution and therefore did not witness the transformation that took place. Others will not even remember the Chávez era. In your opinion, how does the time that has lapsed since his death affect the place that Chávez's legacy occupies in the collective consciousness of the people and the struggles that the Venezuelan people face. Sí, ciertamente, 10 años después de la desaparición física del comandante Chávez, ciertamente lo generacional comienza a tener mayor peso, ¿no? Una persona que tiene hoy 20 años. Certainly, 10 years after the passing of comandante Chávez, this generational dimension begins to carry more weight. A person who is 20 years old today was very young during Chavez's administration, and 10-year-old boy or girl today did not live during Chavez's time. To put it another way, without a doubt, in principle, there could be a risk that the new generations grow up with their backs turned to the experience of the Bolivarian Revolution. There is a simmering danger there, and a lack of knowledge about that experience could become commonplace. Anti-Chavismo, as expected, is deeply committed to its effort to prevent Venezuelan society in general, and the new generations in particular, from knowing or being capable of interpreting or analyzing without prejudice what happened between 98 and 2013, which was the time when Chavez was in office. All this is at play. What I can tell you is that up to now, I believe that the place occupied by Comandante Chavez and the collective consciousness is secure. There are even opinion polls that back up what I'm telling you. Ten years on, Chavez continues to enjoy a very high popularity, that is to say, well over 50%. So, for the moment, if we were to take a snapshot right now, I think you could say that his standing isn't at risk. Now, I do believe that there is a risk, a latent risk. There is a gigantic undertaking aimed at underestimating the importance of all the extraordinary things that the Bolivarian Revolution has represented. All that the Bolivarian Revolution and the leadership of Chavez meant for Venezuelan society, for the continent, for the world, for the peoples of the world. Along those lines, what seems quite evident to me is that the figure of Comandante Chavez continues to occupy a very prominent place, I would say, in the collective consciousness. But at the same time, I worry about a phenomenon that seems to me to be one of the most important political phenomena of recent times. I'm talking about political disaffiliation. It seems to me that Chavismo, as a political identity, has weakened quite a bit. This is more or less obvious, but this weakening is directly related to the physical death of Chavez. Chavez was not just the leader of the Bolivarian Revolution. He was also its main reference. Not just his political reference, but its main ethical reference. And not just within Chavismo, but of Venezuelan society in general. Once this reference is gone, there's a certain sense of loss. 
It seems to me that this phenomenon of political disaffiliation must be addressed. That is, something the political leadership of the Bolivarian process must necessarily confront. Something that the Venezuelan people itself, and I hope specifically the organized people, the movements, the different political instruments, etc., 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 must face as well. They also have the challenge of facing this phenomenon and determining its causes. What is behind political disaffiliation? How much does this say about the weakness of the current leadership? What does this say about the mistakes that might be happening within the revolution? As we know quite well, not only do we know it, but we suffer the consequences on a daily basis. The siege, the attacks and the threats, and beyond that, the aggressive actions of the U.S. blockade, the political and economic siege, all weigh very heavily on the process. This whole series of attacks against the Bolivarian Revolution is well established, but at the same time, I think we run the risk of making a deeply misguided reading of Chavez's era. I'm concerned about a certain tendency among some to conclude that while Chavez was president, everything was okay. The saying, let's put it in very vulgar terms of vulgarizing the political discussion, goes like this. Of course, with Chavez, it was much easier because oil prices were sky high, etc., etc., etc. I believe that the truth is very different. It seems to me that it was not the case at all. Not even the bit about the price of oil is accurate. Although there certainly was a peak in prices, but that was never the normal situation during Chavez's time. During Chavez's time, there were constant attacks. That is to say, the attacks against the Bolivarian Revolution never ceased. They were extremely hard in the past as well. So the current attacks can't be used as an excuse to evade one's own responsibilities or mistakes that can be behind this phenomenon of political disaffiliation. You have commented that revolutions need not be afraid to start anew. In this case, it would be starting over, but not starting from scratch. Understanding that there is a whole evolution, both in Chavez's thought and the political project itself, what are the key elements, in your opinion, to take away in a process to modify the balance of forces in favor of reconstruction of the historical bloc? and begin to be able to draw a new horizon in the Bolivarian process. El chavismo, vamos a plantearlo de la manera más esquemática posible, sin sacrificar los sustantivos de la explicación. Chavismo, to put it as schematically as possible, but without sacrificing the important bits, can be interpreted, at least in part, as the popular response to the deep crisis the elite pact found itself in, which is the Punto Fijo Pact of 1958 a pact signed immediately after the overthrow of the dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez, which ruled the country for the 40 years following the end of the dictatorship. Via this Punto Fijo pact, democratic action and the social Christian Cope they alternated in power until 1998. As an aside, the second government of Rafael Caldera does not formally belong to either of the two parties since it was a coalition of parties that included part of the traditional left. But we know that these two parties still ruled for all intents and purposes, regardless of who formally ran the government. In the 90s, we were witnessing the death throes of those very elites who ran the country. The experts who've studied these matters, especially from an economic point of view, have conclusively shown that the economic model entered what could be considered a terminal crisis at the end of the 70s. 
Not long after the beginning of that crisis, we're talking about the end of the 80s, the first alarm bell would sound. I'm referring to the February 27, 1989 uprising known as the Caracaso, using Gramsci's terminology in my opinion. That's the breaking point for the ruling bloc. Chavismo will also be a way of denominating, of enunciating, rather, a new power bloc, a new alliance of forces that will take the political reins in Venezuela and will seek to implement great transformations, not only in the political realm, but also in the economic, social, cultural, and general realms. That is to say, Chavismo is, in a way, a declaration. It translates itself into a new configuration of a new balance of forces. In other words, to continue with Gramsci's terminology, Chavismo is a very counter-hegemonic in nature, and there's a whole endeavor that seeks the construction of a new hegemony, again in the Gramscian sense, not in the pejorative sense of the word, of course. There's a whole political will aimed at building hegemony, as Chavez expressly stated, a popular and democratic hegemony, a really genuinely democratic, radically democratic hegemony. The Bolivarian Revolution is this, it manages to create this. There's a new balance of forces, a political class that is going to take the political reins, that is going to reformulate the rules of the game, the political game, etc. When it comes to the balance of forces, this is something I'm interested in emphasizing. I was already hinting at this in my answer to the first question. In spite of the fact that Chavismo will always be a subject, a multi-class movement, as are all the broad movements. It's a subject where the popular class has prominence. The backbone is fundamentally the working class and within the working class, what according to several scholars could be called the subproletariat. The subproletariat is that fraction of the working class whose salary is not even enough to live on, not even enough to buy basic things, to acquire foodstuffs, not even enough to reproduce itself as a labor force. In the 1990s, this was like 60% of the Venezuelan workforce. That's to say, this was a gigantic mass. It was not a typical industrial reserve on it. It was something much more excluded, much more marginal. It was a majority of the Venezuelan workforce that was not just excluded from the formal labor market, but from the labor market in general. And it was excluded from politics. It was excluded from urban planning, excluded materially and symbolically. This is the backbone of Chavismo. The popular classes, the working class, and particularly the sub-proletariat, are who will defend and are going to sustain the process during the first years of the revolution. It's the majority of those that took to the streets in 02, in 03. It is the majority that would carry Chavez to victory in the 2004 recall referendum, in the 2006 elections, and beyond. And Comandante Chavez will govern for all of Venezuelan society. In fact, ironically, there are fractions of the bourgeoisie, I'm thinking especially now of the importing commercial bourgeoisie, that benefited tremendously during all these years of the Bolivarian Revolution. But there is no class fraction that gained more materially and spiritually than the subproletariat, which would grad gradually disappear because this subproletariat gradually swelled the traditional working class. The working class becomes larger and larger, and the subproletariat, little by little, becomes smaller through the revaluation of wages and other indicators the reduction of poverty, etc. 
In my view, to put it in few words, the balance of forces changes. The electoral defeat of Chavismo in the 2015 National Assembly elections was another alarm bell. Not as loud as 89, but still very significant in political terms. It was a clear sign that the bloc built by Chavismo, which was sustained by the working class, was beginning to crack. In other words, Chavismo lost in 2015 because a section of the popular classes did not vote for Chavismo, did not vote for the pro-government candidates, let's put it that way. Again, this is in very general terms because we don't have a chance to go too deep into the subject. When it comes to starting over, I certainly think a revolution should not be afraid of starting over. And taking into account everything the popular classes have achieved during the Boulevarding Revolution, this wouldn't mean starting from scratch. To say that would be demagoguery. To start anew is, it seems to me, for the working classes to recover the central role they clearly had during the Chavez government, and during part of the government of Comrade Nicolás Maduro. I believe that the current economic policy of the Maduro government does not have the working classes' main focus. It seems to me quite the opposite. That is to say, it seems quite clear to me that current economic policy measures end up placing most, not all, the burden of the economic crisis, the very serious crisis that Venezuela has suffered for a good part of the last decade, on the backs of the workers. I believe that this is the most serious error in economic policy measures in recent years. It seems to me that a reconfiguration of the balance of forces has been taking place there is a quite clear tendency to shift the centrality of the balance of forces from the working class to some fractions of the bourgeoisie, both the old bourgeoisie and the new bourgeoisie. Because there's also a new bourgeoisie, there's a new class of rich people. There are some newly enriched people with some very close ties to the political class. This is not a secret at all. Something that President Nicolás Maduro himself denounced in 2015, if I remember correctly, in a very good speech before the National Assembly. Needless to say, it's a danger that Chávez spoke of on several occasions. I believe that starting over must take this into account, must involve the reconstitution of the historic bloc, a redefinition of the balance of popular forces. This necessarily implies, by definition, placing the Venezuelan working class back at the center, and specifically recognizing the decisive importance of that class fraction that is the sub-proletariat and that today, perhaps even more than in the 90s, once again, it is a majority and it will play a decisive role. Quizá incluso más que en los 90, vuelve a ser mayoritaria y, bueno, ya lo decía, decisiva. Permítanme ser lo más duro que pueda y que deba en esta nueva autocrítica sobre este tema. That's our program for today. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into some of the issues we talked about, check out episode two, Popular Power Under Duress, featuring young communard leader Jesús García from the Altos de Lidice Socialist Commune in Caracas, as well as episode nine, The Praxis of Hugo Chávez, with political science professor Chris Kilbert on the place of the commune in the struggle for socialism. We also have a new infographic and a video called Constellation Chavez, Five Guiding Ideas, highlighting some of Chavez's key ideas to commemorate his life and the first chapter of the Bolivarian Revolution. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for all things news and analysis on Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, 
from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. We'll end today's episode with the song Se Multiplicó by El Combo Masna. Cinco de marzo, año 2013, tu cansado cuerpo ya no pudo más. Un mal generado por extraña causa, terminó cegando tu vida y tu luz. Los que te adversaron y los que te amaron. Fueron sorprendidos, ya no estarás más Poco a poco entienden lo que no entendían Te has hecho millones, no hay nada que hacer A quienes festejan porque ya te has ido Hay una noticia que no va a gustar Chávez no está muerto, se ha multiplicado Y si alguien lo duda, trate de explicar Esas multitudes que lo acompañaron A su venerada escuela militar Ruge la cana y el odio contenido Pero al fin comprende Ya no hay marcha atrás Y los que te amaron fueron sorprendidos Ya no estarás más Poco a poco entienden lo que no entendían Te has hecho millones, no hay nada que hacer A quienes festejan porque ya te has ido Hay una noticia que no va a gustar Chávez no está muerto, se ha multiplicado Y si alguien lo duda, trate de explicar Esas multitudes que lo acompañaron A su venerada escuela militar Ruge la cana y el odio contenido Pero al fin comprende Ya no hay marcha atrás Ya no hay marcha No hay peor fracaso que alegrarse por la muerte de aquel hombre que no pudiste vencer en vida. Ya no hay marcha atrás, porque todos somos Chávez. Qué dictador tan fuerte tuvimos, 55 países decretaron duelo. Ya no hay marcha atrás, y millones lo lloramos, porque todos somos Chávez. No murió, se murió.